Hey fam, welcome to the NetSuite podcast or welcome back to our other listeners who are always with us. I am your host, Kendall Fisher, and you just tuned into our Office of the CFO series, which means I am back with our business and finance editor, Megan O'Brien. What's up, Megan? Nothing much, Kendall. Just looking forward to diving into our podcast fun today. Well, I am so excited to get into this episode with Melissa Hurrington, CFO and head of operations at Premier Claims, a public adjusting firm based in Omaha, Nebraska. She has such a cool story and journey from finance roles in the nonprofit sector to a catering company for major concerts and events, which there will be some fun stuff in that part, um, to her current role in the startup life with Premier Claims. Yes, she talks about each of these roles and how they set her up for success as a CFO. And one of the biggest things she learned in her journey was to let numbers and data do the storytelling and drive decision-making, no matter what the industry she found herself in. Yeah, and you'll hear how that actually also helped her in charting success as a leader at a startup, especially amid the last couple of years and current economic climate. Um, she even explains how NetSuite seamlessly fits in with that strategy. You know what, Kendall? I say we just let Melissa tell the story herself. She's a great speaker and, as you'd assume, an awesome storyteller. And we think you'll love to hear about her journey yourself. I could not agree more, Megan. So with that, stay tuned. It's all coming up next. You're listening to the NetSuite Podcast, where we discuss what's happening within NetSuite, why we're doing it, and where we're heading in the future. We'll dive into the details about the software and the people at NetSuite who are behind all the moving parts. We'll also feature customer growth stories, discussing the ups and downs of running a company and how one integrated system can help your business continue to scale. Hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me today. So where are you recording from today? Omaha, Nebraska, the center of the United States, a few less cornfields than people would expect, but everything you think when you think of Nebraska, nonetheless. Wow. So very, very flat. Yes. (laughs) You got it. That's what I think about. Um, what, uh, I got to ask, we're in a, we're in a bit of a, it's, you know, we're in July here and we're in a bit of a, a heat wave across the United States. What's the weather like there? Yeah, we pretty much live July and August and high nineties, low hundreds and, uh, deathly humid with no water in sight. So just oh, no. outside sweating together. Yeah, exactly. Um, now we always like to start our podcast with a fun icebreaker. And since we are in the middle of summer, um, we thought this one might be fun. What is the best trip you've ever been on? Ever, 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 ever. Okay. Uh, my absolute favorite vacation of all time was my husband and I went to Jamaica And I mean, Jamaica, the people, are you kidding me? Just Mm -hmm. joy all over the place. You can't help but have a good time there. But very specifically, one evening on this trip, it rained and we gave zero cares in the world about the fact that it was raining and just danced all night long in the rain together. And it will forever be one of my all-time favorite memories. 
I love that. That is so fun. I have actually been to Jamaica. Um, we stayed at the same, the sands resort or, or maybe it's like, Oh, sandals. sandals? Yes. Sandals. Yeah. Cause we are a family. So I was young. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Me- yes. Megan, have you ever been? I don't think I have actually. Well, then you have not experienced full joy yet. Yes. Uh, just the personalities there in that country are absolutely incredible and right up my alley. So highly recommended. I love it. I think Megan knows what her next trip is going to be. I know. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, I could talk about this all day, but I guess it's time. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's time to, to get back into uh, what we're here to talk about, which is finance, um, a little different from our trips to Jamaica, but oh, equally <laughs> joyful. Equally exactly. joyful. That's what we say here on the office of the CFO podcast series. So yes. yes. Um, okay. So we want to hear about your background first. Did you always know you wanted to get into finance, Melissa? I did as lame as that sounds. I knew in about seventh grade that accounting and finance was what I wanted to do. I wish I had a cool story as to why I don't, I just knew it. I think a part of it was back then as a child and even early in my career, I was very black and white. And to me, accounting and finance was uh, simply a formula that I knew I could get to the right answer at the end of the day and that the balance sheet would balance. And I was like, yep, sign me up. That's what I want to do. Was it what I thought it was going to be? Nope, not at all in any way, but was 100%. um, I I just knew that that was what I was going to do with my career. Hmm. My my dad tried to get me into finance and I was like, no, I, I like the gray areas. So then <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I, then I couldn't do quickly, quickly discovered that business lives in gray, but wow. that's, that's okay. Those were some life lessons, I suppose that I had to learn. Well, you ended up studying accounting in college at the university of Nebraska, at Omaha, and then you got yes. your MBA at Nebraska after, correct? Correct. So a big question for a lot of finance professionals is whether or not to get an MBA. What are your thoughts? Oh, I love my MBA program. Um, I still, to this day, look back on just some of those basic foundational principles that I learned during that program um, and rely on them or created such a cool network. It was my first real uh, experience with networking was in my MBA program and remained friends with some of those guys that I graduated with who've all gone on to do amazing things um, and, you know, reach out to each other. Hey, what are you guys doing with this? What are you doing with that? And the reason I went with my MBA was I knew that Um, If I wanted to have a fast and aggressive career, I needed to understand the business aspect of things. Accounting and finance is one thing, but those numbers are really just a result of operations and business and what sales are happening and everything else. So I wanted to make sure that I kind of understood that full spectrum of business. Um, I mean, 10 out of 10, I would highly recommend it for anyone. My only regret 
if you are asking, which you're not, I asked myself, is I do wish I would have waited a little bit and got more real world experience. I think I could have related to so much more going through that program had I actually experienced it myself. Uh, some of the concepts that we were talking about in that program, I think I could have just gotten uh, even more useful tips and tricks out of it versus, you know, young, scrappy, maybe you think you know more than you do at the time, but yes, loved it. Wow. That's, that's super interesting. We, you know, we hear that actually pretty often. Um, a lot of the CFOs that we've talked to on this series have talked about whether or not they would tell someone younger to get their MBA. And then the other part of it being, would you get your MBA directly after your undergraduate? And a lot of them have the same like feeling as you, some of them did wait, got real world experience, then went back and got their MBA and that, Mm -hmm. and like you said, it provided some useful tips. So I think that's, that's really cool that, um, you kind of align that to so many of the other uh, episodes in this series, um, and what other people have said, and that's great advice. Um, Now, when we have CFOs on this podcast, we really like to delve into their professional background and how they got into their current role. That's how, uh, that's kind of what this, this series is all about. So can you take our listeners through your career history? What roles led you to taking on your first CFO title? Sure. Uh, I have a bit of an eclectic, uh, career history and, uh, have been, have worked in all different sectors, industries, different types of companies, sizes of companies. And the cool thing about that is that you kind of take little nuggets away from all of them. Right. So I, uh, undergrad, grad school, we just talked about, and I did the typical path of, I started with public accounting and I was so sure what I was going to do was public accounting and get my CPA and become partner at a big four firm. Um, Was certain that that was what it was going to be for me. And I was focused in my time in public accounting on the audit side of things, which I loved actually. And what I loved about it is I did not nonprofit audits. So those are about two to three weeks long at max. And so every two to three weeks, I was in a different office with a different company in a different industry using different systems, processes, all of it. And you had, it felt like at times matter of minutes to kind of wrap your arms around it and understand what was happening why it was happening and kind of what story these numbers were telling in order to be able to go through and do the ticking and tying. I absolutely ate it up day in and day out. And I loved the change. I'm just not somebody who wants to sit behind a cubicle, never was, and certainly never will be. Now, the reason I was not able to stick that one out is because nobody was ever excited to see me Every time you, you were the auditors. So you showed up and it was, you know, you talked to the receptionist and then she'd turn around and be like, Cheryl, the auditors are here. I'm like, no, I'm fun. I swear. I'm happy to be here. I know you can't wait for me to leave, but I'm thrilled to be here. And that just kind of slowly killed my spirit. And then tax season, everybody's a tax accountant if you work for a public accounting firm. So I was there just shy of two years, learned so much and actually got an opportunity to go work for a nonprofit. Um, I worked for Mosaic. They are an incredible nonprofit. Um, 
serve adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I've learned there how much meaning your work can have. And it was at that point in my career that I knew I would never again work somewhere or doing something that I don't love because I loved going to work every day and every day I left feeling like I made an impact and you don't necessarily always get that in accounting and finance uh you know you you paid AP you wrote the checks but it doesn't necessarily feel great and so working for that nonprofit that had a mission that aligned so much with my own personal values was super powerful Adored my time there, adored that organization, stayed there for several years, but it was time for me to kind of take on that next challenge. And I got recruited out of there and I went, I worked for a um, publicly held company um, and enjoyed my time there as well. I stayed there for about two years. They were doing about 85 to $100 million a year in revenue. So it was a pretty big undertaking. It was the first time at that point that I was really on that accounting, that true accounting side of things of posting journal entries, doing month-end closes, doing all of those types of things, and uh, really did enjoy my time there. I learned a lot, um, sat right next to the auditors who all day, every day, 365 days a year, it felt like we were consistently dealing with either internal audit or external audit. Um, I worked for a CFO there that we remain friends and colleagues to this day. Uh, super grateful to have him within my circle that he was very real to me. And he would come over and he would joke and we would talk about his kids and he'd ask about my kids. And that was my first interaction with a CFO where I felt like, gosh, he's just another guy at the end of the day, right? That there's nothing special about him. He was incredible at what he did, but, uh, you know, he wasn't up on this pedestal and it was kind of the first time in my career that I saw that and was like, you know what, that's something that I could do. I always saw CFO kind of as this corner office cut off from everyone super put together, which I will never be, um, suit and tie kind of, seat. Uh, and it just didn't feel like it would ever be a great fit for my personality, but Nate was incredible. And I attest so much to him, um, during my time there from there, I went and I returned Levy restaurants, got recruited over there, there in the hospitality industry, and it was event-based. So they did the hospitality, the food and beverage concessions, hosting weddings, backstage at a Lady Gaga concert, um, sporting events, all of that. And I mean, talk about the time of your absolute life. So much fun. I would, I tell everyone if Taylor Swift did concerts at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, I would work for Levy Restaurants until the day I retire because you just can't <laughs> beat an environment like that. I learned so much for sure, but it, the reality is, is that concerts aren't Monday through Friday from eight to five and the late nights and the weekends uh, just weren't working for me and my family anymore. We had our second baby when I was there. I worked a, um, actually a Bud Crawford, his boxing, if you guys know him, he used to be a top rank, um, worked a Bud Crawford fight 
nine months pregnant, 12 hours before I gave birth to my child. And when I came back from that, you know, you get home two, 3 AM and then my daughter was born and I was like, I'm tired. I just can't keep doing this, but uh, really learned so much from the director of operations there. And that is where I absolutely fell in love with operations was from her. And again, just great environment. Um, and then I had kind of at my peak level of tired one day, uh, it was right after the Olympic swim trials are actually in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was 21 days, 20 days, 21 days, something like that of these 12 to 16 hour days uh, with a six month old, yeah, a six month old baby at home and ran ran into the CFO of Mosaic at Starbucks. Um, So Mosaic is who I had worked for before and just he caught me at the exact right tired moment. And he was like, would you ever consider coming back? And I was like, yep. Absolutely. (laughs) Sign me up. That sounds great. Let me go get my 18 shots of espresso and then let's chat about it. (laughs) Um, And so I went back to Mosaic in an elevated role. And again, that company will forever have my heart for the work that they do. And uh, I was overseeing all of the accounting and finance function for the Nebraska agencies. About $85 million a year was under my belt, six different locations. Uh, And there I really learned kind of that fast paced nature. It was a lot uh, overseeing all of those different agencies, all of the staff, you know, interesting looking back at it post COVID, but trying to figure out for the first time how to manage staff remotely, which is something I had certainly never done. Um, was enjoying my time there and am still sometimes to this day surprised that I still don't live there and then had kind of a freak interaction I suppose with the CEO the owner and CEO of Premier Claims and him and I connected and he reached out and asked if I would consider joining the company and we had a conversation and him and I clicked you know the people that just have that it factor that you can't put your thumb on our owner and CEO here. He has that it factor. And I was like, this guy's going somewhere and I want to be a part of it. And they had just started. And I jumped over here into the role that I am now of CFO and VP of operations for a then startup. We were uh, just babies at that point um, for a public adjusting firm, which I I didn't know a single thing about roofs or insurance claims or anything else, or I didn't even know public adjusting was a thing prior to joining here. So it's been, it's been a ride. That was probably longer of an answer than you were looking for, but it's a journey that we went down. No, I think it's super interesting because I mean, uh, immediately right off the bat, you said like I, that bouncing around into different industries and companies of different sizes, sizes, even sectors between for-profit and nonprofit. I think that's super interesting to hear you. You said that that was, that was beneficial for you. Like that helped you learn so much about business, um, and get you to the point where you are today, which I, I, I couldn't agree with more. Um, I do want to take it back to, uh, to Levy, to Levy restaurants. So you gave us some insight into what Levy restaurants was all about. Um, catering for big concerts, sporty, sporting events. Um, yep. I'm getting that right. Right. Perfect. Yep. 
So what did your controller role entail? Like I'm hearing you say that you would be there from two, you know, at events until two, three o'clock in the morning, whatever it may be. What did, tell us a little bit about what that role entailed there and what skills you needed to be successful in it. Yeah. So it was a little bit of your typical controller role, what you would think of a month end close, um, overseeing all of the accounts payable, accounts receivable, uh, uh, financial management, like all of those different things rolling up to you. But then we are event-based and that's where your revenue comes from. And when you have, you know, 20,000 people who all want a beer before a Kenny Chesney concert, it's all hands <laughs> on deck. Right. Uh, so we were then outside of that typical controller role, what you would think is I also oversaw the cash room, the vault, uh, making sure that every concession stand had all of the cash that they needed and nothing more to kind of handle the risk management side of things. So we checked everyone, we checked money out at the start of the event and then we brought all the money back in and counted all the cash and balance the safe before anybody could leave the vault and head home at the end of the night. And then what happened in between those things was whatever needed to happen. So we would, for something like a uh, Lady Gaga concert, you're talking, making sure that all of those beer stands, liquor stands, the clubs, suites, the regular concession stands have everything that they need. Then there is the business side of uh, the merchandise that it's all a game of percentages, right? Who gets what? Uh, So Lady Yaga would bring in her own merch and would sell the merch, but then you get a percentage of the merch since they're selling it in your venue. Um, So handling all that as well as then their backstage. So when people talk about, you hear all the crazy stories of people's writers, right? What's on the writer of only blue M&Ms or Aquafina bottles that have to be turned to 25%, um, I mean, 25 degrees to the right, that all of that stuff kind of fell underneath us and our team. Uh, so it was, mo- it was, you know, 75, 80%, mostly that traditional Monday through Friday controller role. And then there was the event aspect of it. Wow. Okay. So first and foremost, before we move on, you don't have to name names, but can you tell <laughs> me one of the weirdest things on a writer that you ever saw? <laughs> I feel like I could write books for, for sure. Um, they're, you know, they, most of them were not as crazy as some of the stories that you would hear, but there was a specific individual that wanted, like I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but wanted Aquafina water bottles in their personal dressing room. And the A, the first A on the Aquafina needed to be facing forward. Uh, they say most of them are just regular down-to-earth people Uh, it kind of they kind of almost took some of the glamour away from some of those big events because you'd run into them and you'd realize like they're just doing their job 
as am I, right? That this is just to, when you attend the event, it's this, you know, it's date night. I'm celebrating my anniversary. It's something I've been looking forward to and counting down for six months and to them it's Tuesday. Right. Right. Uh, Right. You know, that it kind of takes back some of the glamour. Most of them were pretty down to earth and nothing like the stories that you would hear. And then there was the ones that they just liked things, uh, you know, a certain way. Right. And, 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 you know, I hear that there is sometimes there's a reason for it to make sure that everybody who's running the show or whatever it might is be aware of it. Yeah. is, is, is on it. And so that, that way the show goes according to plan and nothing crazy happens. So I think there, I, you know what, everybody has their thing, whether it's for that reason or not, who, who are yep. we to judge, but yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing you talk about all this and, and this is very different from like maybe your normal controller role, but what sort of KPIs <laughs> were you, were you tracking in this particular role and industry? Yeah. So the biggest thing that we were tracking was, uh, what we would call their flow through. So anything can happen with an event and you really never know, um, you prepare as much as you can for how many tickets you've sold, what demographic is going to show up. You know, you need a different, you need less beer at Lady Gaga than you need at Kenny Chesney. Right. <laughs> right, right. Um, you, you better, you better have some, vodka sodas ready at lady gaga and you better have all the beer lines available yeah. ready at a kenny chesney concert um but you can't necessarily control was there a big accident and people getting down there was parking an absolute disaster or was something else going on and when people get there and everything else that you would do your best to project these revenue numbers based on the demographics that you had, the number of tickets sold that you had recorded leading up to the event. But what you could control was then if you sold less revenue or more revenue than what you were expecting on that particular night, how did it flow through to the bottom line? Because if you doubled uh, that's unrealistic, if, but let's go with it. Cause I put it out there in the universe. If you <laughs> doubled, um, how much cash you brought in that night, but somehow only 20% of it flowed through to the bottom line. Like why, what happened there? Or you had to be kind of prepared for every situation. If people just didn't show up in the way you expected them to show up, or you failed to properly account for the fact that it was a Thursday night and most of these guys weren't that excited and we're going to go to work on Friday. So they didn't drink that heavily. Um, And even though you fell 25% short of revenue, did you, how did that, how did that flow through to the bottom line? Did you completely lose all control out of your labor costs and your um, food and beverage costs? Or were you able to manage those? Because once you tap a keg, you tap the keg and you have a short lifespan of that, uh, not lifespan, shelf life of that keg, right? So you kind of had to control things based on other things that was going on. So one thing we were always talking about was our uh, flow through of, did you control the controllables essentially? Um, Then we, as a food and beverage hospitality industry, you cared a lot about your food and beverage costs. And that was a KPI that we were tracking all the time. But then we tracked a lot of how quickly could you get someone through the line. You have 20, 25, 30,000 people at an event and a 15 minute intermission. How many of those people can you get served? So we would look at number of tickets, 
um, well, tickets being like number of transactions per people that attended the event. And are you getting enough people through multiple times that everybody had the opportunity to go through the line two, three, four times, whatever they wanted? So tracking that KPI and then tracking um, the average dollar amount of our ticket as well. So were you finding a way to upsell them? Are you, if you're at a NCAA March Madness game, were you making sure that they upgraded to the large popcorn, not just the small popcorn? Were you getting people to essentially spend more money while you had them at attention with their credit card handy or not? So that was something that we were tracking all the time. Wow. Wow. <laughs> this so was a direction different. you didn't expect us to go. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it. look, it's just, it's so different from what we heard before, but I think that's so important. I mean, it's, you know, there are so many different paths um, to take in this world. And I think it's so important in the finance world, I think, and to get to a CFO position, I think it's so interesting to hear this path because we, we truly have never heard it before. So that is, that is very cool. And you know what? I really fell in love with data analysis at that point of, I'm a big believer that the numbers tell a story and you just have to be able to read that story, but the numbers don't tell the full story. So if you didn't work an event because we would take turns or you'd find somebody else, or maybe you were sick or something else, I can't come in the next morning at 8am and take a look at last night's numbers and not go, Hey, wait a minute, what happened here? Both good or bad. Um, if we oversold or undersold or whatever it may be, if the numbers were, if you were 30% shy of your revenue projection, I can dig into it and see, Oh, there was an issue with the credit card processing and it slowed things down by five seconds of transaction. Okay. That can explain things. But what I might forget is it was raining outside. It was raining outside and it was a sold out event. And so 99% of the females after walking three quarters of a mile through the rain to get to the arena, went to the bathroom to go fix their hair and makeup instead of getting in the beer line. And that's why your numbers went down. And I really kind of like fell in love with this data analysis. What story are these numbers telling? And do I have all of the information to fully understand what that story is? And that is, I mean, just tip of the hat to Chris Van Dorn, who was the director of operations there. She was a master at it and I would just eat it up. I uh, just eat up every conversation with her around it. Like what happened here and go through it and look at it from 12 different directions to kind of put, cause it's never one isolated thing, which always makes things complicated. And that operations side of the numbers, just, I spoke my love language filled my cup, whatever you want to say, that is what got me excited every single day. And that's something that I'm still in my current role and all future roles uh, that stayed with me, right? What number, I mean, what story is this number telling? And do I have all of the facts or do we need to dig deeper and see what else is happening here? Well, speaking of your current role, um, Uh, We are going to talk about how that controller role impacted how you operate today. But first, um, let's talk about the current role at CFO at Premier Claims. Tell us a little bit about your company. What does Premier Claims do? 
Sure. So we're a public adjusting firm. Mm-hmm. Um, we That means we work property insurance claims. So, and most of those claims happen after a weather-related event, hail, tornado, fire, hurricane, whatever it may be. When your property is damaged and you file an insurance claim, we are, as public adjusters, advocate on behalf of the policyholder. So we will go toe-to-toe, head-to-head, a little bit of a David versus Goliath situation and advocate on your behalf up against your insurance carrier if you feel as though you've been improperly denied or grossly underpaid. And on its surface, that maybe doesn't sound that exciting. And I certainly, the first time I heard it was like, "Mm, I don't know anything about roofs or insurance, (laughs) or not sure I necessarily care much about any of those things, but then you get into it and, oh, I could nerd out over it all day, every day. Um, I'm always saying, I think it's actually a sad reality that this business even exists. I don't think you should need it in a perfect world. Your insurance company would pay you what they should pay you according to the policy that they wrote. We're just playing by their rule book. Um, But at at the end of the day, the reality is, is the insurance company is a for-profit business, as are we. But they're a for-profit business and like any business, they're trying to control their expenses and their expenses are their claim payouts. And that is where we come in, is that the insurance process was designed to be a negotiation And through brilliant marketing, they have made their consumers kind of forget that it was meant to be a negotiation. So you file an insurance claim. They send out Jake from State Farm and he hops up on your roof and he (laughs) takes a look at it and he comes down and he offers you $10,000. And what people have forgotten through their marketing is that he offered low because he's expecting you to ask hi, and then we're going to work our way and settle in the middle. But people are taking the $10,000 and saying, well, I guess this is what it is and moving on with it or feeling as though they don't have any other option. So we provide a service where we'll advocate on your behalf. Um, We charge a contingency fee. So a percentage of whatever we get released, if that answer is $0, then we shake hands and part ways and you are in the same position you were in before you hired us and if we hopefully do a good job and money gets released we split it according to whatever that percentage is that we've agreed to okay well this is a very different industry than levi restaurants was it a bit (laughs) some days this place feels like backstage at a lady gaga concert let me tell (laughs) you so I mean, like, I can't even imagine like kind of making that jump from running around at concerts to kind of fighting for, for the man. How, how was it? Well, the bigger adjustment was going from big companies to a small startup. It was like the wild, wild west. One of the first things I implemented like day one is I said, oh, you guys need a payroll schedule. Like every other week, we should do that. Uh, Wow. That seems seems like a good idea. And uh, so it was this opportunity to start truly from scratch of building out a business and a culture and uh, our market share and every piece of it from 
pretty close-ish it felt like to day one. So um, that was the biggest change more so than the nonprofit world or the entertainment world to public adjusting. But I really think my experience as the auditor of being in and out of different companies with different processes, with different personalities, it, it assisted me in a big way to step up and just kind of immerse myself in it and be like, all right, what do I need to know? Let's start with the basics. What do I need to know? I, I know my, my house has a roof and it does roofy things, but outside of that, let's, let's start there. What kind of roof does my house have? How can I know if there's damage on my roof? Um, what is, like any organization, what are all of your guys' acronyms? Can somebody give me a dictionary? Because I don't know what any of you are talking about. And then just reading up on things. I'm a big reader for whatever reason. If I can see the words, I feel like I can absorb the words better. So like, what can I read? What blogs can I get a part of? And just kind of immerse myself in it as much as possible uh, to try to catch myself up to speed and then just rely really heavy on my past experiences and business experience. Oh, you segued that perfectly. Um, speaking of relying on past experiences, how did the role of controller for Levi make the transition to CFO, even though it was a different industry, a bigger company? How did that make it easier? Um, it really was about that data analysis, the story, the numbers are going to tell a story. So trust them as long as you have good data, which that can be a hurdle to get over, but trust the numbers, believe them. The numbers are going to show a trend before you even realize it's trending, right? Just getting into it. What, what are the numbers I should care about? What are the things that are a flashing neon sign in your front yard that I can't miss? Um, and what things are telling me that, okay, things are going well. Okay. Things are actually going quicker than I realized because like any service business and we were fully bootstrapped by the owner, um, a hundred percent owned by him. And we took on zero debt in the first five years of the business. Uh, so that service industry, and we have a delayed revenue process because a claim I signed today is going to a maybe pay me, maybe not, but also is going to, if, when it does pay me, it's going to pay me three to six months from now. But the problem is I need someone today to work it. And so trusting, learning to kind of trust those numbers, learning what numbers I needed to understand, needed to care about and picking up on those trends. And that at the end of the day, was just like a beer line at a concert. It truly was. It was no different of like, what's the weather outside? How many people are coming? What's the demographics of who's coming? How quickly can I pour this beer? It, it, it's kind of all the same. The numbers tell the story and then the math, maths. That's why I loved accounting and finance in the first place, right? Is you got to an answer. Uh, you, you got to something post equal sign at some point in your analysis. And so just learning to look at that and trust it. And um, so uh, truly, believe it or not, working concession stands and weddings and baseball games applies just 
as easily here to working property insurance claims because it's all it's all just math at the end of the day. How did six out of the top seven best performing tech stocks gain visibility and control over financials, inventory, planning, and budgeting with NetSuite by Oracle? Answers at netsuite.com slash code, netsuite.com slash code. Okay, but I have a curveball for you. So I, okay. I, I hear you and I agree 1000%. Let the numbers tell the story. Um, okay. What about though, like when you are like you, you're, you're a CFO at a brand new company. Um, honestly, any, any type of executive at a brand new company, um, how do you, those first few years can be so critical. How do you help chart a strong course? Like sometimes those numbers aren't there. Like you were brand new. Sometimes the, the company was brand spanking new. Sometimes those numbers aren't there to rely on. So how do you go about you know, charting a super strong course and really, um, helping the company get through those first few, few years. Uh, coffee and prayers, um, <laughs> a lot of coffee, but really it's, it's about projections. Um, I feel like I'm consistently projecting and reprojecting and reprojecting everything that I'm doing a little less to this day. It's a little more long-term projections, but you make assumptions and that's really all you have to to go off of is trusting your gut, trusting your instinct, uh, seeing what numbers you can drum up and then doing that projection and just re-projecting and taking a look at it daily. But here's what I think is going to happen based off of what I know today. And then at the end of the tomorrow, comparing it and saying, okay, so what assumptions was I wrong on? all right, that didn't happen. This was more than I expected. Oh, I didn't think about that curve ball and then projecting again for the next day. And then eventually you got to where it was, we were a week out based on what I know now, here's what I think could happen next week. Okay. And then that either did happen or didn't happen. Almost always didn't happen. Right. Especially in those early days, but taking a look at it of which one of my assumptions were incorrect and why and then control the controllables. So go back to it. Was that something that I was just straight up wrong about and have no problem admitting when I'm wrong? Or did we not do something? Uh, Did we not control what we could have controlled? And so, yeah, it's hard when you don't have a baseline, but you have to start somewhere. And sometimes it's a shot in the dark. Sometimes it was a game of chance. I, I do remember early on, um, there was one projection. And honestly, I don't think I could tell you exactly what it was. I think it was number of claims that we are going to sign, maybe, that I hit like nail on the head. And our owner was like, how? Like, what did you know? And I was like, oh, that was a guess. That was absolutely a, a lucky guess. Um, but you had to start somewhere. I think we can sign 60 claims have conversation with your sales staff. What do you have in the works? How long is your sales cycle? What do you like? I love sales teams. I love their energy. I love their optimism. It's beautiful, but cut the crap. What do we think is actually going to happen this week and utilize their gut, their instinct. They're the ones kind of in those weeds out in the field, trying to make it happen. So going from there, and then you just have to baseline it and you have to start 
somewhere. And that's why all you can do is just kind of lean on and leverage your past experiences, the different ways that you've looked at things, and then a whole heck of a lot of humility to say, nope, I was just wrong. I was way off base. Here's why, right? These are the assumptions that I did make, but they were just straight up wrong and being fine to kind of lick your wounds and move on from it, own it, move on from it and learn from it and make new projections, make new assumptions with just a little bit more knowledge. It's all you can do. Mm. Great advice. I kind of think I want to make a motivational, like, a motivational uh, poster for my room that says control the controllables because I love it. <laughs> well, you should know that, that, that is like, I think that's a life lesson. I think business and personal and uh, employee, employer, husband, wife, it's all relationships. It's all interactions at the end of the day. So my children who are five and eight at this point, uh, they get the same control, the controllables. Uh, lecture from me all the time. So (laughs) I, one day maybe they'll want to put a poster in their room or in their office. Right now I just get eye rolls when I'm like, what are we going to do? And they're like, control the controllables. That's right. That's right. You struck out three times at your baseball game. That's okay. But what are you going to do? You're going to control the controllables. All right, but let's talk about it. What are your controllables? What can you control? I can control my swing. I can control my mindset. Yep. Um, I I think that's a life lesson that can apply to things far outside of the C-suite or numbers or anything for sure. Oh gosh. Especially now. Um, Uh, Yes. We would would be remiss if we didn't emphasize that you serve as both the CFO and the VP of operations at Premier Claims. Can you explain how you came into that role and what you do for it? Okay. So I'm going to give you the honest answer and then I'm going to give you looking back on it, why I'm glad that we did it. Mm -hmm. So the honest answer was I was hired to be CFO of a very small, very new company. And when we were talking while I was working out my notice, um, the owner and I met daily and we're having conversations, kind of planning this jump off point so we could just hit the ground running. And I was like, here's what we got to do. We got to get processes. We got to get this right. Like here's all of my, my first 90 days are going to look like this. And it's some really foundational things. And then I got to set some baselines like we were just talking about. So I need to talk to your people. So I'm going to have one-on-ones with everyone, like catch me up to speed. What do I need to know? What do I not need to know? What's going well? What's not going well? They're the ones, uh, they're the ones doing the work at the end of the day. Right. So how let's have this conversation with him. And he was like, is it going to be weird to them that the CFO is asking to meet with them and wants to talk about this or that or anything in between? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. I've never met your staff. Do you think it's going to be weird? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, then just toss in an operations role. And so that's, that's how it happened is we added and VP of operations. So that's probably more transparent than I should say on a public platform, but that's honest. Now, looking back and everything that we've now just talked about for the last, however long we've been chatting is that I think the operations are what creates the numbers that I think I know that, um, I can, 
preach profit margin all day long. I can, uh, you know, talk about your COGS or your EBITDA or, or your ROI on a new tech project or anything else that you want to talk about. But at the end of the day, what created those numbers? The business did, the operations did. And that is, I think it's so important that I look at the CFO seat truly from the operations side of things first of the numbers that are rolling up to me, no one, no one is better than your accounting or finance person to take a look at that data. And like I was mentioning before, spot trends, spot trends before they become issues and then be able to go back to the sales team and say, hey man, what's going on here? I'm, I'm seeing a thing. Is this just like post 4th of July, people are still on vacation because 4th of July was on a Monday slump or is something else going on here and have those conversations that I love the operations side of things. And I think it makes sense to roll up. Additionally, I knew that I was going to be taking on the um, at the time it wasn't formal, but that HR seat, the legal team rolls up to me tech, IT, um, all of that rolls up to me as well. And so it made sense to add the operations side of it onto it. And then I had conversations with so many other CFOs and they're like, oh yeah, IT and legal and HR also report to me. And I was like, oh, I just thought this was a small business thing, but there's been this like huge shift in the CFO space that a lot of them are being super immersed in operations. So that's the, you know, how it came about. And I think why it was such a powerful thing that we did decide to make that decision. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring this around to a selfish plug because when I hear (laughs) this, I'm like, how can someone possibly manage all of this? But then when you kind of laid it out like that and why it all makes sense and how these two roles really fit well together and complement each other, I also can see how technology would help. And earlier, yes, uh, earlier, you kind of alluded, you kind of alluded to that. Um, and really, you know, letting the data speak for, uh, letting the data speak for itself, tell the story, really looking at the data and letting it and letting it guide you. Um, and then here, when you're talking about these two roles, so I'm curious, how have you utilized technology to kind of do all of this? How has technology played a role in your, in your journey, especially as CFO and and head of operations? Yeah. I mean, technology, we frequently with our team, we say we're a technology company first. We work property insurance claims and it's like blue collar guy on a ladder gets on a roof. But at the end of the day, we are a technology first company of a there's efficiencies in technology and people cannot deny it one bit and as we are growing and scaling at the pace that we are in the four years that I've been here we've grown revenue 21x which is more just again coffee and prayers happening there that it to scale at that pace and be able to meet the service expectations that our insureds are expecting, let alone deserve, you have to be efficient and you have to leverage technology to get done what humans can't get done. It feels like we're consistently on this catch up pace to hire enough people to work the claim loads that we have as we continue to grow and scale. But what I love the use of technology most is I am consistently, we uh, preach it here of what can you automate, 
delegate, eliminate. That way, if we can automate something, if we can make something easier, more efficient through the use of technology, that means that person, whether it's an hour a week, 10 hours a week, whatever it may be of their workload, they now get to take on 10 more hours of challenging things. They get to elevate themselves, their experiences, their opportunities, and use their brains and creativity and innovation to go do bigger and better things with the company, which is all I can ask of any of my employees here is I want them to professionally grow and scale as quickly as the business is. And that would just simply be impossible without the use of automation, without the use of technology, without the simplicity that it can really bring. Um, We don't do anything fancy. Mm -hmm. Technology, I think a lot of times people see it and it's intimidating or they see it as expensive or these long lead times. Just start somewhere, start somewhere small, whether it's um, automating a text of we have simple text automations that (laughs) happen that if there is a an issue on a claim because that is what we do we work insurance claims if there's an issue on a claim with a click of a button from anyone within the system a text a group text will go out to the salesperson the customer service person, the insured themselves. And if they've hired a contractor, a text will go out to them. Hey, we need to get on a phone call and discuss X, Y, and Z and immediately alerts everyone. And we can get on the same page and we can stay out ahead of issues without having somebody miss an email or people are humans at the end of the day. And if today's not the day that they want to deal with an issue, put it off until tomorrow and it becomes a bigger issue. Well, they were forced into the group text. So they're in it right now. And that is from an operation side across the board, but certainly accounting and finance, the game has changed. You guys know that in your seat and your role. And obviously that's what you guys are preaching all day, every day. I don't want my team posting entries and clicking off on bank recs and doing all of the input of AP and all the traditional accounting and finance stuff. Um, I want them looking at it and spotting trends and reading data and seeing where we can maybe renegotiate our AP contracts um, and doing way more high level stuff. And that's not possible without the use of technology or automation. So there, there, I mean, there is a big theme in here that we're hearing, you know, this may be critical for your company and in your, in your, in premier claims business strategy, but like in general, right now, when you say, um, what was it automate, eliminate, what was that? What was the third one? Delegate. Delegate. Right. When you're saying those three things, I mean, that's something that we're hearing pretty much across the board. Doesn't matter what industry you're Mm -hmm. in. People are looking uh, how to how to improve the bottom line through more efficiency and therefore more productivity and automation is a huge a huge part of that. Um, so tell me how how NetSuite is helping your company do do that hit those three th- those three things delegate automate eliminate um, and and helping your and helping Premier Claims really dive into those numbers and make the critical decisions you guys need to make um, as quickly as you're growing. 
Sure. So first of all, as a full ERP, which admittedly we haven't even fully implemented yet, um, I knew I needed to make a jump off of QuickBooks Online as the company was growing. And I knew I needed to do it sooner than later because mm-hmm. otherwise we I just got busier with every yeah. day and it felt more overwhelming with every day that went by. I was like, okay, I need to make this jump now. Even if I don't want to go full ERP yet, it, I need to be on a system that has the ability to do it and immediately found in the simplest form, um, efficiencies of everything just kind of being all in one house. And then it's fully customizable. So if I can decide that I need a different um, data point, or if I need to look at it from a different perspective or run a report a little bit differently, being able to kind of make that change and make that change relatively quickly on the fly was so huge. Uh, the biggest thing was that just immediately bringing kind of everything all in one. And then it has what feels like this endless ability to be able to automate things. And so many different things can plug into it where your accounting and finance operation become, can become just about as plug and play as you want it to be. Um, or it can be a simple accounting solution that does what it needs to do. If that's where you're at in your business, that's where we were at in our business. When we first jumped over to NetSuite was like, right now I just need this to do its thing and we'll start there and we can continue to build on it and grow on it in the coming years. And I knew that it was a robust enough of a system that it could grow right along with us. And then as simple as it sounds, the cloud aspect of it was just a non-negotiable for me. And is this like a shared vision across the organization? I can understand why this is so important in, in, in finance roles, but is this kind of this like idea of, I mean, I guess you kind of already said it automation is, is really a big part of, of the company at large, right? It is. Yeah. Um, I will pay bonuses to anyone that has an automation idea. I don't care how big or small we can math that out and we can figure out what that bonus looks like. But if you can find a way to bring an idea of like, I don't even need you to find the solution. I need you to say, Hey, I've noticed that I do X, Y, and Z 12 times a week. And I think that can be automated. Perfect. Love that. Show me what you're doing. And I'll hand it off to my tech team who are brilliant at what they do and see what they can do of when we first jumped into like real automations, we looked at it, um, from kind of the wrong perspective. And I heard someone on a presentation once say, don't try to boil the entire, the entire ocean. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. you're right. And that's what we were trying to do when we first kind of started on this journey. And it was like, no, let's just stop and let's go simple. There are so many simple things that if you're doing a repetitive task in any way, there is absolutely a solution out there to automate that. Or, and even if it's not an end to end automation, which is ideal, if it can give you a template, a baseline or something else. That's huge. So let's talk priorities. What are your top priorities today? Ooh, that's a question. Um, Top priorities for the company right now as we stand. Is that the question? I think so. I, whatever. I think, 
I like seeing how you interpret it because that means it's kind of top of mind. Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, my biggest priority at the end of this year is hiring the talent shortage, great resignation, whatever you want to call it is real. Um, so hiring new people and retaining my current staff, I would go to war for the staff. Um, I love every single one of them and I want to make sure that I'm just as focused on the retention side of things of keeping them happy, engaged, challenged, properly compensated, which can feel like a mountain to climb some days. Uh, they know our company in and out. They're brilliant innovators. Like I said, they're coming to us with solutions for things. Uh, I need them and I need them here and happy and engaged. So focusing on that retention side of things. And then as a scaling business, trying to hire and the market, despite, I feel like every day I log into LinkedIn and see more and more and more and more layoffs, I'm not seeing the resumes come through. I can tell you that <laughs> that much, uh, that with this like great resignation, um, people I think are leaving the workforce or finding different things to do in gig economy or anything else. So looking for great talent that want to come work for a company like ours and ready to take on the challenge uh, is has been a larger challenge in 2022 than I was expecting. And then just my other thing is focusing on kind of some efficient growth here of, I don't want to grow just blindly and grow revenue and lose all control out of your expenses or anything else, you know, start spending money because you can afford it in your personal life. They call it income creep, right? Where all of a sudden you make more money, but you have nothing else to show for it because your spending habits have just caught up to you. Um, so making sure that we're staying focused on being efficient, staying scrappy, keeping kind of that startup mindset of bootstrapping this company and seeing where we can go with it. And then just making sure that we are being strategic about how a recession affects our business. I'm not sure I know the right answer to that. Um, the nice thing, I suppose, in the industry that we're in is that Mother Nature doesn't give a damn about what the economy is doing or what a recession looks like. She's still going to bring on the hurricanes and the storms and the hail and everything else. So we're relatively insulated in that way, but trying to understand how that affects our clients. So just because we are unaffected necessarily by a recession doesn't mean that a homeowner gets an insurance check and isn't having to make very real decisions of what to do with that check. Uh, you know, suddenly when you have 20,000 or 40,000 or a hundred thousand dollar check made out payable to you in your hand, I think your average person would pause and give it some thought and be like, well, wait a minute we need this right now. And maybe we need this, this cash more than we need this roof or understanding. Um, I think there's some pros to it. I don't want to say pros. That's wrong. I think there's some opportunities um, of ways that we can be a solution to businesses in a recession. But then there's also the reality of insurance carriers. I don't get paid unless an insurance carrier writes a check. And so right now I'm spending a ton of time researching 
what does a recession look like for the cash flow of an insurance carrier? I know they make the majority of their money not actually from premiums, but from investing those premiums. So when those investments go south, how readily available are they to write me a million dollar check, no matter how great of an argument my team makes. Um, so those, you could say two, you could say three, the people, one, it, both retention and recruitment, and then what a recession really looks like for us. And how are you using NetSuite to navigate all this? Um, you know, again, just the data piece of it, having everything in one's, uh, one place, uh, the simplicity of it, the efficiencies of it, being able to look through just kind of year over year um, tracking of that data month over month, sometimes week over week, or the different geographic locations around the United States. I feel like NetSuite allows me to slice and dice things and look at it 20 different ways that I certainly never was within QuickBooks. So that reliability of it, the availability of it, and then just that customizable nature of being able to dig into it and analyze the data and make sure that I'm staying out ahead of all of these things. Oh, this is so informative. You've like hit on so many things in here that we, like I said, like we're hearing other businesses talk about right now and, and so many CFOs talking about, and it's just so interesting to hear your perspective. Um, it, 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 this has been so informative. Um, I'm curious. So we did a little bit of research on you and, um, we know that you're part of the CFO leadership council. We've actually interviewed a couple of folks from the leadership count, the CFO leadership council as well. Um, and you have about 12,000 followers on LinkedIn, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I'm curious how like you go about utilizing that platform, utilizing your involvement in the CFO leadership council, like how do you go about communicating all of this with your colleagues and, you know, future finance leaders and any really executive, um, that might, that might follow you even just on LinkedIn. Sure. So first I will say Jack and the CFO leadership uh, council are incredible. What an incredible organization. Um, LinkedIn is actually what brought me to Jack, uh, Jack and I have been connected on LinkedIn for a while, and I registered in May to go to their convention, their conference um, in Boston. And shortly after I registered, I got an out of the blue email from Jack that was like, hey, followed you on LinkedIn for a while. Are you actually coming to Boston? And I said, yeah, I am. And he's like, would you be interested in presenting? And it snowballed a bit from there. I told him, I was like, uh, brace for impact. You don't know who you just handed a mic to, but if you're down, I'm down, let's do it. And had a great time. And, um, I told everyone at that convention that I felt like I met my tribe. Uh, I didn't realize how much power there was in just being in the same room with people, uh, and being able to relate to each other, being able to like, mm-hmm, me too. That's what I'm going through too. Same, been there. That I walked in thinking that I was going to get a lot of uh, kind of direct learning and knowledge and kind of the hard skills is what I expected. And typically those are a pretty big snooze fest. 
So I was so relieved when there was so much less of that and so much more just like leadership and camaraderie and uh, networking and building this kind of, it felt like I left there with a safety net under me that I knew that I have no problem saying what I don't know. And now I know who to go to because surely someone within that organization knows and has been there and has done that. And instead of having to get the scar myself, uh, I can learn from their scars. So LinkedIn is what led me to the CFO Leadership Council, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, As far as LinkedIn, you know, I decided about two years ago to be super intentional on LinkedIn. I wasn't necessarily sure what my goal is. I'm still not necessarily sure what it is um, for what my goal still is with it. I love writing. And so it's an outlet for me. And then I believe firmly in authenticity and transparency. And this thing happened when I first got that CFO title and I walked in to the company immediately people treated me differently. And I don't mean it in a, in a bad way. It was the title demanded more respect than I was even prepared for. And I felt like I was practically shouting from the rooftops of, I don't know either. I'm just like you, like I'm mentally making my grocery list for target (laughs) in the meeting that you're in as well right? I'm going to go home and uh, be exhausted and have a short fuse and be an absolute failure some days of a parent to my kids and other days knock it out of the park. Like we're all facing the same thing. And I struggled with it. I struggled with it. I felt like almost this intense spotlight um, or like I was being put on a pedestal that I didn't want to be on of I'm just as anxious as you about certain things. And where it really came to a head for me was COVID. COVID happened. And as that VP of operations or the HR side of things or whatever, it happened, it happened fast. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. And all the eyes in the room turned to me. Okay, what are we going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. And it was the first time that I felt like it was truly, I don't know, not, I don't know if this is the right thing. I don't know if this is the best idea. It was, I don't know. So I started reaching out to other executives I had within my network and they were all like, Melissa, I don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? Your company just like issued this eloquent statement the other day on your behalf of what they were going to do about COVID. And he's like, I I don't know. We went with it because we felt like we had to and reached out to somebody else. And it was, I don't know. What are you guys doing? And I was like, why are you asking me? I've never been through a pandemic before. And they're like, me either. And I, it was like the fourth or fifth person I talked to that was equally like, I don't know what to do. I'm equally terrified. We're going home. And, uh, you know, we all went home and I had, my daughter was two, two at the time. So a two-year-old and a six-year-old at home, I'm teaching a kindergartner how to read in between Zoom calls. She's crawling on my lap because she doesn't understand that mommy's at work. Uh, no concept. Mommy was home. So why aren't you giving me attention and crawling on my lap and wanting to play with my hair and wanting to talk to the people on the Zoom? And 
everybody looked at this seat like she's going to be the one that is going to lead the charge through this. And I almost cracked under that pressure, but talking to other executives that were saying, I don't know what to do either. I was like, then how come nobody's saying that? Why is everybody feeling like they have to put together, like look put together or feel so confident in what it is of what the right next step is? Why isn't anybody saying this is hard? And so I posted on LinkedIn a picture that went relatively viral. I'll use that term very loosely. Um, Viral in my world, I think it got uh, like 50,000 unique impressions on that post. It was a picture that my husband took of my daughter on my lap hugging me and I'm <laughs> business professional from waist up and I'm wearing yoga pants on the bottom. Um, just like everybody else was at home. And I posted on there saying, this is hard. This is hard. I don't know what to do. I'm just as stressed as you are. Um, you need grace. But as a leader, I need just as much grace. We're all just getting through it together. So why don't we stop apologizing for the kids showing up on the screen? Why don't you stop apologizing that your dog is barking in the background? Why don't we just all say, this is hard, but we'll get through it together. And it was the first like really vulnerable thing I put out there. And the response was insane. It was insane publicly. It was an even crazier response privately in messages on LinkedIn and text messages and everything else of like, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one that didn't have it together. I thought um, I was the only one that was like, no, mommy's a CFO. So you really can't crawl on my lap during this presentation. And I was like, no, damn it. Why are we doing that? Right. And so then that kind of turned the corner of, again, I'm not sure what my goal is, but being honest and transparent and frankly, not being scared to say that I don't have it all together. So my business card says CFO and VP of operations, but I am a whole human who is perfectly imperfect and I make mistakes all the time and I am scared a lot of the times. And so I started talking a lot on there about my imposter syndrome. Um, I talk a lot on there of my failures. I talk a lot on there of why uh, I think some old school business principles need to be flipped on their head and looked at differently, kind of with this no shame aspect, because so many people publicly and more so privately, I wish I could encourage people to stop messaging me directly and just post it publicly for others to see, uh, are saying like, oh my gosh, me too. I'm feeling those same things. And I thought I was crazy because I was the only one feeling them. And I'm like, no, I'm feeling it too. I mean, just today I posted on LinkedIn. I just use stuff that comes up in my day-to-day personal level, professional level. And today, right before this, I made a post on LinkedIn. I made two of my employees cry yesterday. And I am not proud of it. And I had to go home and take a hard look in the mirror and say, girl, what are you doing? What are you doing wrong? Because it was two people in two different situations where I, I dropped the ball on my end of things. And 
that maybe that's not glamorous to post and that's okay. I'm sure somebody out there is judging me for it. And that's the nature of the internet, but posting it and being like, I screwed up and I screwed up in a big way, but I'm a whole person and I have imperfections and all I can be asked to do is learn from them, be accountable to them, apologize when it's necessary and not apologize when it's not necessary and continue to learn and grow together and be fully transparent. So I got way up on a soapbox there. I'm not sure if I fully answered your question. Uh, you tell me. <laughs> no, it's it's all about being real. And like, I think we've been talking about writing an article about this, kind of like how to grow your brand. And because um, a lot of CFOs struggle with that and struggle kind of showing them their real selves to others. And mm-hmm. like, I just love this insight and we could keep this conversation going for so long, but we have to wrap it up, but selfishly, because I really want to ask this to conclude, you're part of a really rare group. Um, I was uh, reading a survey that was done at the beginning of the year of nearly 700 businesses, only 15% as in one five had female CFOs, Mm. not to mention you're also a young CFO. Do you have any advice for uh, kind of specific to those in more of a minority position when it comes to achieving the CFO position? First of all, I think no one is more capable in a business setting than a mom because moms can get stuff done and good luck rattling me because I've dealt with a toddler throwing a tantrum that their cup is green and they wanted a blue cup at the same time of juggling playing a board game with the older one while also trying to maintain a relationship with your partner, right? So you want to talk multitasking, the ability to make it happen, manage different priorities and know who needs what, when hire a mom all day long, hands down. Now, I believe that also fits well into that C-suite role. I've always been a little bit, I am woman, hear me roar and have had a healthy chip on my shoulder in that way. Um, I think women are incredible and so emotionally intelligent and can read a room and everything else that a, I think we belong in a C-suite. We belong everywhere where decisions are made according to the queen RBG herself. Um, They deserve a seat at the table and everything else. So I think it's a sad statistic, but it's a very real statistic. Uh, I am just as capable as a female as any one of my male counterparts. And I have no problem saying that and saying that boldly as far as what has gotten me here. I don't know. Um, A lot of it has been some humility of knowing that I'm never the smartest person in the room. And if I am, I sure should get out of that room as fast as possible. So just learning and absorbing from other people. And then I would be remiss without it saying that I've had great female leaders almost my entire career. Uh, there's been a woman out ahead of me and just watching them being awestruck sometimes by them handle things with such grace and, um, with such just emotional stability and uh, that emotional intelligence and everything else that I've had people who have certainly paved the way 
way out ahead of me. And then the having a daughter, becoming a mom is huge. But then my second one was the girl and having a daughter. It was the moment I knew she was a girl. I was like, that's it. It is game on. It is my responsibility to prove to her that she can be no matter, she can be whatever she wants to be on this earth. And if somebody tells her that she can't, she can prove them wrong. Um, and that it was a really huge driving force for me. Now, as far as being a young CFO, I think a lot of that has been, I've been recruited to every single position I've had outside of the original job that I applied for in college. I haven't applied for, I've applied for other jobs. Let's be clear. I have either been rejected or (laughs) chosen not to take them, but every single job that I have taken in my career, I've been recruited into that. And almost all of them have been from someone I worked with previously. So don't burn bridges. Be, I've always been me. Like this is me, take it or leave it. I'm not for everyone. I have a big personality. I'm a bit rough around the edges. I'm certainly not pulled together in any way, Um, but I'm real and I'm me and we're going to have a good time working together and we're going to challenge ourselves and grow together. Uh, But just really building those relationships. And I've had jobs that maybe weren't my favorite, but finding something great about it and showing up with a great attitude and then having sometimes unexpected people from from previous jobs reach out to me and say, Hey, I have a new opportunity at this new place. And you were the first person I thought of, um, leave an impact on people. I got that from my dad from a young age. He always said uh, when we would head out the door, starting in elementary school, make someone smile today. And that is how I choose to live my life is if I can just make one person's day better every day before I put my head on the pillow, then I've done my job. And I think that relationship building and putting goodness hopefully out into the world and having a positive attitude. And no matter whether I like a job or like a person, they still get nothing but love and respect from me. I really think that kind of came back to me tenfold and then consistently learning. You have to keep learning, whether it is reading or TED Talks or quick content on LinkedIn, whatever it is, just be a sponge and absorb, 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 absorb from every place that you can so that you can keep sharpening your skills, sharpening your professional abilities and just keep pushing it to the max. Wow. Well, on that note, what great insight. And I think that's a great, a great spot to end. Um, I'm always, I'm always down for ending on putting more goodness into the world. So, mm-hmm. uh, we, we will end there, Melissa. This was super insightful. Love to hear your story. Um, a, a very unique, uh, definitely a very unique story for us on this, on this series office of the CFO. And so we're excited that we got to talk with you and, and look forward to hearing about all the awesome ventures to come in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hopefully I put a smile or two on your face. Wow. So much in that episode to unpack, but again, I just really love that. She's all about letting data and numbers do the storytelling. That's something she never really faltered from. Right. She really lets the quantitative and the qualitative sides inform each other. And people tend to only focus on one or the other based on their own strengths and their role. 
Um, I will say, though, I will be expecting you to have Aquafina water bottles sent before each podcast with the ace facing out now. (laughs) I think I can make that happen for you, Megan. Um, Well, thank you so much to Melissa Harrington for joining us on this episode. If you actually want to reach out to her on LinkedIn and become one of her thousands of followers, we've left that link in the description of this episode, along with some other helpful articles on what we discussed today. And of course, I can't end this without thanking you, Megan. Oh, thank you, Kendall. Well, and last but certainly not least, I want to extend another thank you to our editing crew over at Lampstand. And as always, all of you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want more episodes just like this one, make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a rating and a review. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. You just listened to the NetSuite podcast. Be sure to tune in every week with more NetSuite developments, stories, and insights into the benefits of one integrated system to help you run your business.